Hey, welcome. It's good to be back. Thank you for allowing me to have the last three weeks off with my family. I needed it. I was definitely hitting real close to that burnout point. And man, I just needed time seeing those painted canvases of grace, seeing nature, spending time in God in some different kind of cathedrals for a little while. So thank you for the time off. Now, tonight we start a new series, and I'm going to stay in this, I think, through the rest of summer, for those of you who stick around, because we're going to go through some what I call difficult questions, scary questions, deep questions. And so I encouraged you this week, if you saw, to submit me some questions. Nothing holds bar. You can ask whatever kind of uh, anything related to our faith or the world. There's nothing off limits, as you'll see tonight. Just difficult, deep, hard questions, anything you've ever wondered about. And we'll tackle that this summer as best we can. Some I might just, uh, if it's a short answer, I'll post on Facebook, maybe some thoughts on it. The rest, I'll just come in here and we're going to teach on it. And you're going to learn on it. And we'll learn probably together because I'll learn as I study some of these difficult questions. I do have in my hand that I ran out to get is a map of Florida. Does anybody remember these? And they're like Gen X and older. Like you went to a new state or whatever, and you went and bought one of these maps or atlases or whatever, and you got it, and you, you know, you started to open this thing, and it's like, okay, let's open this up here, and we get it open, and like, okay, G311, and you're trying, you know, you're trying to find where you're going to go if you've seen this, and, you know, you got your map all, oh, oh, it ripped as I'm opening, crap, okay, now we're ready to get on the road, right, and so what we do with this thing, we got to, like, fold it somehow, and, oh, geez, so you try to put it back, well, that's not working very good, you try to put it back together, and you just, you know, get rid of that. You remember that, right? That they, those maps. We had one at Volcanoes National Park as we're walking around, and I just was thinking, I'm like, once you unfold this map and use it for its intended purpose, it's really hard to put that map back in its perfect little package like it came in. And I thought about these questions that we're going to go through in the coming months, that once we unpack some of these difficult questions as a church, we might not be able to fold them up all nice and neat like they used to be. And that's a challenge. If you've ever studied Scripture and, and really studied it, I mean, don't just read the Bible verses that people post on Facebook. You actually have read the Bible. And Derek and I were talking earlier, just some of the weird, difficult stories that I'm going to pull in this summer. If you've ever studied the Bible, you know that sometimes you're going to unpack some things that you can't put back in its nice little package. Well, Karen and I were in Hawaii with the family. She had the idea. We read a lot of books, fiction and nonfiction. She said, well, we ought to read our Bibles too. And so she put together a 30-day through the Gospels plan. And so it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reading it through each day, certain sections of Scripture as a family. And we fell off the map a little bit now that we've been home and we haven't finished it. I hope we do this summer. But we got through at least the first two Gospels. And what's interesting when you read the Gospels kind of back-to-back -back in a short period of time, one, you realize there's some contradictions in the Bible, which we have to deal with, and that's going to be another week. Why are there contradictions in the Bible, and what do we do with that? But we also see some things that repeat, and we know when they repeat, what well, must be important, because each gospel writer thought important enough to include this story. And so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they include this one, and I'll read it to you from Mark uh, chapter 10. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. 
Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Verse 15, he says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. A lot of things that we can kind of take from those verses, but one of them is, is that children, if you know, aren't afraid to ask questions, and they ask a lot of questions. If they have a map, they're not going to leave it just sitting over in the corner. They're going to open it, and they're going to explore it, and they're going to ask questions. And some of the things that children think are wrong, meaning sometimes they're going to have wrong interpretations for some answers. And Jesus in Scripture not only allows that kind of childlike thinking of getting things wrong, of asking questions, of unpacking things, he actually not only encourages it, but he commands us to that childlike faith. And so again, I'm telling you, this is going to be a challenging series for a lot of us, me especially. And so I'm inviting you to open up your maps this summer and go on a journey together as a church to approach all these topics that we're going to talk about like a child, to be willing to explore and to ask difficult questions, taboo subjects, and as you do that, to have an open mind, to be willing to take your perfectly folded up faith that's just sitting over here, nice and pretty, open it up, and then see how it comes back together. So on the screen, uh, Peyton, if you'll put it up, this is a list of all the people I could think of who have the Bible all figured out. It's a pretty intensive list, as you can see. Uh, I got another page here of some people I found. Oh, there it is. God is the one person who has the Bible figured out. The rest of us don't. And there are those who think they have all the answers, that their views or their interpretations of the Bible are correct. And I'll give a little sidebar here. A lot of those people who think their views of the Bible are all correct are the ones that rarely open their Bible to actually read it and study it. While we were coming back from Hawaii, we stopped on the way back in Indiana. My niece got married. It was in Nashville, Indiana, which Nashville, you think Tennessee, but this was Indiana. It's out in the country. She got married in a barn. And so, yeah, you can laugh if you want, but we're going out this little country road. And as we're going out this little country road in middle Indiana, it's like a hundred little churches. Some as big, I tell you, as the stage, some a little bit bigger, but just church after church, the Presbyterian, the Baptist, the Methodist, every denomination you could think of, sometimes two or three of, it seemed like the same denomination, there were non-denominational churches. And I've talked about this before, just, just how there's so many different denominations. Well, that same week, I read an article about the Presbyterian church, and I like the Presbyterians. If I was in a denomination, I'm probably somewhere between a Baptist and Presbyterian that's, that's a little progressive or whatever, but th that's kind of who I am. But I was, I was interested to learn that 85 years ago in Philadelphia, that's when the Presbyterian church started. I thought it was a lot older than that. But the church since then since its founding just 85 years ago, has merged and split and merged and split. And so now there's really five or four key Presbyterian churches. There's the Presbyterian Church in the United States. That's the PCUSA you might see. There's the Presbyterian Church of America. They didn't get real creative with their names, the PCA. There's the Presbyterian Church in America. Really confusing here. There's the United Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. I hope they abbreviate that. There's the EPC, that's the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. There's the OPC, the Orthodox. 85 years is a short time to be Orthodox, but an Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I'm sure there's so many others. 
And we read that and we see that and we see all those churches going out that little country road. How in the world could we ever be so arrogant to think that we have the Bible all figured out? Which then begs the question, why didn't God make the dang thing a little more clear? Here's what C.S. Lewis, somebody I greatly respect, says about that. He says, the human qualities of the raw materials show through naivety, error, contradiction, even wickedness are not removed. The total result is not the Word of God in the sense that every passage in itself gives impeccable science or impeccable history. It carries the Word of God. And we, under grace, with attention to tradition and to interpreters wiser than ourselves, and with the use of such intelligence and learning as we may have, receive that word from it, not by using it as an encyclopedia, but by steeping ourselves in its tone or temper, and so learning its overall message. We might have expected, we may think we should have preferred an unrefracted light giving us ultimate truth in a systematic form, something we could have tabulated and memorized and relied upon like a multiplication table. But there is one argument which we should be aware of using. God must have done what is best. Therefore, God has done this. For we are mortals and we do not know what is best, and it is dangerous to prescribe what God should have done, especially when we cannot, for the life of us, see that He has done after, or He see that He has after all done it. C.S. Lewis talks about not using the Bible as an encyclopedia, or a history book, or a multiplication math book, but instead by steeping ourselves in the Bible by marinating into the text, into its tone, into its temper, and thus trying to figure out its overall message. What is that overall message of a Bible? Well, if we keep that childlike faith, let's just keep it real childlike. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks to some Pharisees who think they have it all figured out, that they know all the answers. They spend all of their time then in the minutia of the gospel, of, the, of scripture, missing the big story, the big message. And so when he talks to these Pharisees, those who think they have all the answers, those who think they know all the little details, he has some harsh words. Matthew 23, and I think they're some of the harshest words of Jesus in scripture. He says, woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of God in heaven, of heaven in people's faces. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You travel over the land and sea to win converts. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers of the law. You give a tenth of your spices, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy faithfulness. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Throughout history, the Bible has been used for all sorts of terrible things. Today is Juneteenth, so happy Juneteenth to everybody in the room. I'm glad to see that it is now a national holiday. 
And while I was on vacation, I'm just taking notes of, you know, what I want to preach on when I get home and just some thoughts God has given me and being creative because I had the time to do that. And one of the thoughts I had was coming in here tonight, straight off vacation, no warning, no anything, and just start preaching like it's the 1700s. Like, like what would my sermon sound like if it was the 1700s and I was coming in here to preach tonight? And it would go something like this, my brothers and sisters, Abraham, the father of our faith, held slaves without God's disapproval. And yet those people up north want to take away our God-given right. My brothers and sisters, the Ten Commandments mention slavery twice, clearly showing that God unconditionally accepts slavery. I mean, there were slaves during Jesus' time. He never spoke out against it. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he commanded slaves to obey their masters. He even returned a slave to his master. And let's be honest, slavery, it's good for those inferior races. I mean, look how many of those heathens we've brought over here, and we've been able to share the good news of Jesus with them because we brought them into our Christian land. God's word is unchanging, and it couldn't be more clear. That was the predominant Christian view, at least in the South. That's the reason we have Southern Baptists today, which is in the news a lot right now, is over the split of slavery, if you don't know that. That was a long time ago, right? So we've, we've advanced. So let's fast forward. Let's go to this past century. Karen and I were just talking about today, we had coffee, and we're talking about this was not so long ago in that she can remember her church talking about this and teaching it. It's interracial marriage. And this sermon would go something like this. Almighty God created the races. He created the whites and the blacks and the yellows and the reds, and he placed them on separate continents. He didn't intend for the races to mix. Just read your Bible, church. You'll see. Look, Deuteronomy 7, it says, Do not intermarry with them Canaanites. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burst against you and you will quickly be destroyed. I mean, it's been in the 60s. Churches were still holding conferences on whether they agreed or disagreed and they voted on it. Again, that's the 1960s. The history of the church is littered with wildly held bad beliefs. And it took us, I don't know if you know this, until the third century before we agreed upon the Trinity, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like we sang tonight. 1600s, Guy Galileo, you've heard of him, right? He was put on trial by the church for a belief that the earth was not the center of the universe. How terrible. Or very recent... Go back to the 50s, 60s, 70s. Women were made to feel that if they desired a career outside the home, sinful. Something wrong with them. Shameful. They shouldn't feel that they need to repress those emotions and be a proper wife. And I think most of us here tonight, I hope at least, look back at that and we, we just shake our heads. And again, C.S. Lewis, he has a word for that. He calls it chronological snobbery. Looking back at history with our noses turned up, not seeing in that moment that we also live in a period of time. And history will look back upon this period of time and our mistaken beliefs. So, why do beliefs change? If we have the Bible, we have this map that we can unpack, does it mean that the Bible changes with time? Does it mean, we used the word earlier in that song, does it mean that God's word evolves? Ooh, that's a bad word to use in a church. 
Does it mean that maybe we as a society get smarter? It's a tough question. In fact, it's going to be one of the other difficult questions we're going to try to work through and look at some of those weird things in the Bible and, and try to understand how people had views and where they came from. But let me just answer it really briefly because it's, it's imperative for us tonight. As time passes through history, as years go by, we gain a better understanding of the world around us. We gain a better understanding of language. We gain a better understanding of context and idioms and the attitudes of the writers and their assumptions and the general worldview of the time. In Galileo's case, we also gained telescopes, which helped make it very clear that we were not the center of the universe. Long introduction, but I'm laying the groundwork for this series we're going to go through this summer, and I'm laying some groundwork for our difficult question tonight. Of all the things... People could ask me about refuge and our beliefs when they're coming to visit us for the first time. I mean, they could ask me, hey, are you guys egalitarian or are you complementarian? Do you, do you believe in speaking in tongues? Do you believe in healings? Do you, what's your views on the atonement and the garden? Or what's your worship style, at least? Or what's your style of teaching? All kinds of questions they could ask me. But the common question I hear most often is this. And this is how it's phrased. So what's your church's stance on the whole gay thing? When I left for vacation, when I left this church the Saturday before we left on Sunday, that Saturday night, that was the question I heard as I'm walking out of this building vicariously through somebody else who asked it and, and sent to me through them. That question, so what's your church's stance on the whole gay thing? Now, if you're gay and you're coming to this church, I can understand you asking that question right up front because chances are you've been hurt and you don't want to come somewhere where that's going to happen again. Sometimes this question is brought up by circumstances in the church. For instance, last year during COVID, Carly started a book study called Safe Not Comfortable. And it's just an online book study. She had a book per month. I don't remember, Does Jesus Love Me? That was the name of the book, right? Yeah, I, that was the book. And there, it really actually gave both sides of the argument. It's a really nicely written book. But we had some people leave because we studied that book in a book study. And I, was, I actually had a parent call me of one of our members to say, you know, that's not God honoring. Why are you discussing that book? Sometimes we have Scott Morrison preach, if you don't know, and I think most do, that, that Scott has same-sex attractions. He's chosen to live a celibate life. But after he's preached, I've gotten phone calls. Well, how is that? And I don't think that. And I've gotten those calls. Or we got Brandy leading worship. And her and her wife, Jess, joined us this past year. And so I get the questions. And generally, my answer goes something like this. We are a church of misfits. We welcome everyone. And we mean it. And for most people, at least for some, that'll work. But for others, they'll follow it up with the next question. Well, do you think being gay is a sin. And so I'll answer that. I'll say, there are those in this church who think acting upon same-sex attraction is a sin, and there are those who do not. And as a non-denominational church, we welcome both points of view. Now, that gets me through most everybody else. That's enough. And it helps them understand our culture, that we're a church that's willing to discuss difficult questions. But for others... What they're really wanting to know is what do you, the person who is going to be my pastor, what do you believe? I'll be 100% honest. I've never, ever answered the question. And here's my reasoning why. 
It's part of that culture for us as a church. We have this culture, we call it being a peach. So a peach is soft and easy on the outside. The skin, you can just break right through without hardly any pressure at all. You can go right into that peach. We want people to break right into this church. When you get inside the peach, there's this juicy, sweet flesh. And so we want to be a juicy and sweet church, but uh, that flesh, and then when you eat a peach, it's kind of messy. And so we're juicy and sweet, but let's just be honest, we're kind of messy. But at the center of the peach, when you get to the middle, there's this rock-solid pit. The most important thing in our church, the thing that cannot ever be changed, the gospel. And so for me, when I preach, when I talk, the gospel is above everything else. That's our core. That's, as Paul says, that's the most important thing. And so I work hard in my life and in my teaching to remove any distraction that might take away from my ability to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to preach, as C.S. Lewis says, that big story of a Bible, that story that we are all misfits. I love seeing the shirts tonight, that we are all hurt people, that we all hurt other people, that we all think stupid things, that we all do stupid things, that we all need grace, and most of all, that God's grace is sufficient. I have views on lots of stuff inside and outside Scripture. I do. I have strong opinions, but I keep most of those opinions to myself, other than hating vegetables. I keep the rest of them and ketchup uh, to myself for the sake of the gospel. So most of you don't know my political beliefs or my my leanings or persuasions. You might have a guess, but I, I don't share that with anyone. I hold that tight to the vest. I have views Strong political views, and sometimes, man, I just want to scream it at the top of my lungs. But in the scope of eternity, I care much less about people hearing my political opinion than I do having them hear that Christ paid their debt of sin. And so I believe that's who we should be then as a church, that we should place the gospel above everything else, that we should be known for what we are for a whole lot more than known for what we are against. That like Jesus, as a church, we should get a bad reputation for who we include, not who we exclude. But as we were in Hawaii and we were doing some shopping and going into stores, it became apparent that this is Pride Month. I didn't know that it had a month, that it's June, so I'm learning as we go and move forward. And every store we went into, it it had the the Pride merchandise right up front, stores trying to make money, so I I get what's happening there. It's all over social media, and I'm, I'm reading articles, I'm seeing a lot about it. But regardless, I've always kept my view on all of that very close. And I didn't even tell my kids my views on that because I want them to form their own opinions until last week when they asked me what I was preaching on. I said, and they said, well, what is your view? And so for a while now, I've held my conviction in to not share. But before I get to my views, I want you to watch this. Coming and recent events and recognition of citizens... Now, Mr. Burns. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Mayor, as you know, we're gathered here today in our pink shirts to bring awareness to the fight against breast cancer here in Fort Worth and across the globe. But tonight I ask my colleagues' indulgence in allowing me to use my announcement time to talk briefly about another issue that pulls at my heart. Ron, would you go ahead and run the... Um, the parents of Asher Brown, who you can see above, Uh, complained to school officials in the Cypress Fairbanks ISD outside of Houston that their son was being bullied and harassed in school. 
The bullies called him faggot and queer. They shoved him, they punched him, and in spite of his parents' calls to counselors and principals, the harassment, intimidation, and threats continued. For years, it continued. A couple of weeks ago, after being bullied at school, Asher went home, found his father's gun, and shot himself in the head. His father found Asher dead when he came home from work. Asher was 13 years old. I'd like for you to look at his face. Unlike Asher, Indiana teen Billy Lucas never, never self-identified as gay, but was perceived to be by bullies who harassed him daily at the Greenberg Community High School. Three weeks ago, he hung himself in his grandparents' barn. He was 15 years old. Minnesota 15-year-old Justin Auberg came out to friends at age 13, after which the harassment and bullying began. It grew as he moved from middle school to high school. When he found the harassment more than he could bear, he hung himself in his room and was found by his mother. Classmates started teasing and name-calling Seth Walsh in the fourth grade. It continued through his middle school years where other students told him the world didn't need another queer and that he should, quote, go hang himself. On September 18th, after being threatened by a group of older teens, he went home, threw a noose around a tree branch, and he did just that. He hung himself in his backyard. His mother, his mother saw him, pulled him down. Seth survived on life support for nine days before dying a couple of weeks ago. He was 13 years old. Teen bullying and suicide has reached an epidemic in our country, especially among gay and lesbian youth, those perceived to be gay, or kids who are just different. In recent weeks, New Jersey teen Tyler uh, Clemente jumped off a bridge to his death after his roommate outed him on the internet. Rhode Island teen Raymond Chase hung himself in his dorm room, and we learned just yesterday of Oklahoma teen Zach Harrington who killed himself after attending a city council meeting in Norman, Oklahoma, where speakers made disparaging anti-gay remarks. There is a conversation for the adults in this room and those watching to have, and we will have it, that this bullying and harassment in our schools must stop and that our schools must be a safe place to learn and to grow. It is never acceptable for us to be the cause of any child to feel unloved or worthless. And I'm committed to being a part of that conversation. But tonight, I would like to talk to the 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 year olds at Pascal and at Arlington Heights. I know that life can seem unbearable. I know that the people in your household or in your school may not understand you and that they may even physically harm you but I want you to know that it gets better. When I was 13, I was a skinny, lanky, awkward teen who had grown too tall too fast, who would stumble over my own feet. I was the son of a Methodist church pianist named Jeanette and a cowboy named Fittingly, Fittingly Butch in Crowley, Texas. As their son and as a kid in a small town, there was a certain image of who I thought I was supposed to be. But as I entered adolescence, I started having feelings that I didn't understand and couldn't explain, but I knew they didn't mesh with the image of what I thought I was supposed to be. I was a sensitive kid, but friendly. 
I was a band dork. I played basketball, but not very well. I was teased like all kids, but I was fairly confident, and I didn't let it bother me much. One day when I was in the ninth grade, just starting Crowley High School, I was cornered after school by some older kids who roughed me up. They said that I was a faggot and that I should die and go to hell where I belonged. That erupted the fear that I had kept pushed down, that what I was beginning to feel on the inside must somehow be showing on the outside. Ashamed, humiliated, and confused, I went home. There must be something very wrong with me, I thought, something I could never let my family or anyone else know. I think I'm going to have too hard a time with the next couple of sentences that I wrote. And also, I don't, I, I don't want my mother and father to, be, to bear the pain of having hear, hear me say that. Take your time. Take your time. So I will just say, and I'll skip ahead, I have never told this story to anyone before tonight. Not my family, not my husband, not anyone. But the numerous suicides in recent days have upset me so much and have just torn at my heart. And even though there may be some political repercussions for telling my story, this story is not just for the adults who might choose or not choose to support me. This story is for the young people who might be holding that gun tonight or the rope or the pill bottle. You need to know that the story doesn't end where I didn't tell it on that unfortunate day. There is so, so, so much more. Yes, high school was difficult. Coming out was painful. But life got so much better for me. And I want to tell any teen who might see this, give yourself a chance to see just how much life how much better life will get. And it will get better. You will get out of the household that doesn't accept you. You will get out of that high school and you never have to deal with those jerks again if you don't want to. You will find and you will make new friends who will understand you and life will get so, so, so much better. I look back and my life is full of so many happy memories that I wish I could share with those whose photos were shown up above earlier and those who have taken their lives. Memories that I wish I could share with a 13-year-old version of me on that very unfortunate day. If I could, I would take the 13-year-old me by the hand and take him to the campaign office in 1992 of then Governor Clinton, where for a very speechless moment, my now partner J.D. Engel and I saw each other for the first time. I would take that 13-year-old me to the first day of spring in 1999 on a West Texas ranch hilltop surrounded by a dozen head of black Angus cattle who thought we were there to feed. And as the sun set, turning the sky pink and purple and orange, in a way that only a West Texas sunset can, I jabbed my hands into my jeans pocket and pulled out two rings that I'd literally spent my last dollar on and slipped one onto JD's hand and asked him to spend the rest of his life with me. 
I would take the 13-year-old Joel to election night in 2007 in a room filled with countless family and friends erupting in cheers when it became clear that I would win my first election so that they could see the love and support for me that was in the room that night. And I would take the... I would take the 13-year-old me to just a few days ago at Baylor Hospital to see our dad. Our dad, who's no longer the 40-year-old tough cowboy that he was when I was 13, who I thought would never understand me, but is now the 67-year-old dad, still pretty tough cowboy, who has grown older, and the 13-year-old me would see me today holding my dad's weathered hand and see my dad as he woke up from his operation and him squeeze my hand and look up at me and say, Joel, I'm so glad you're here today. And me say back to my dad, I am too, daddy. I am too. To, to those who are feeling very alone tonight, please know that I understand how you feel. But things will get easier. Please stick around to make those happy memories for yourself. It may not seem like it tonight, but they will and the attitudes of society will change. Please live long enough to be there to see it. And to the adults, the bullying and the harassment has to stop. We cannot look aside as life after life is tragically lost. I wanna thank those in this room for allowing me this time. And to JD and the rest of my family, I'm sorry for you learning of this painful personal story in this public way for the first time. But know that I am able to tell it because of your love for me. And mom and dad, I'm alive today because you love me. Again, attitudes will change. Life will get better. And you will have a lifetime of happy memories if you just allow yourself and give yourself the time to make them. Thank you. Stories can be powerful. And I'm sure everybody had some sort of reaction to that. It's probably different reactions depending on where you sit and points of view and maybe people connected to you in your life who are gay or lesbian or queer. But I think we can all agree, I hope we can here tonight, that whether you are L or G or B or T or Q or plus or whatever, that Jesus doesn't want anyone believing they are better off dead than alive. Believing that they are not a precious masterpiece. Believing that he did not die to save them. Often imagine what it must be like growing up gay. The confusion, the doubt, the fear, that sense of aloneness. And then I imagine coming out, because I've heard some stories, 
being picked on and being ridiculed and just the stress of the whole ordeal and the loss of relationships because you came out or being made to feel like you're less than. And then I imagine your church making you relive those feelings. There are some here tonight who don't have to imagine it because they've lived it. And there are those out there in this world who refuse to listen to any good news that we have to offer as a church because of the church. Because of things like Jerry Falwell blaming 9-11 on the gays and lesbians. Because of people saying AIDS is God's divine retribution to homosexuals. Or they've seen the signs that God hates fags. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And maybe those people who have those signs, they're the extremists. They're the Westboro Baptist types. You know who they are. But have you ever made a joke when someone's not listening about the gay community? Have you ever laughed at a joke? Or have you looked at somebody who's gay or transgender and thought, they're less than? difficult question tonight. What is Refuge Church's view on same-sex relationships? It's the gay question. And I think our name most simply answers the question. We are a refuge. We are a safe place for all to take shelter. Now, to answer the question, what does Refuge Church believe we have to remember what the church is. The church is all of you. It's this entire body. It's not one person's belief. And so the belief on same-sex marriage or gay or whatever you want to call it at Refuge Church is this, that there are members of this body who believe acting upon same-sex attraction is certainly a sin, and they have scripture to support that view but they'll show love and grace anyway, because that's our culture. And so those would be called non-affirming, but loving, as opposed to somebody's just non-affirming and hating. And so our belief is non-affirming, but loving. I don't know the percentage, but a percentage of this church. There are members of this body, though, who are affirming of all sexual orientations, of all gender identities, and all expressions of sexuality affirming. And there are members of this church who are gay. Some who are choosing to live a celibate life, some who are choosing to live a same-sex marriage, some who are trying to figure it all out. So my question is, when did the church become a place where we all have to believe the same thing to still be a community together? It's always been my hope that refuge would be a safe place, a grace-filled place where we could have intelligent conversations on difficult questions and then not allow those questions to divide us from the mission God gave us of proclaiming good news. Now, I spent three weeks in Hawaii wrestling with whether or not I share my personal views. I prayed about it, thought about it, consumed a lot of my thoughts. And it was really this. 
would me sharing my personal views damage my ability for that most important thing, for evangelizing, for sharing the gospel? But as I prayed, it became an overwhelming conviction that it's not my protection of the gospel that has held me back from sharing. It's simply been fear. And so, after much prayer and much consideration, (laughs) and backing out about 30 times, I finally posted the question to our Facebook group page on Wednesday, and that became the point of no return for me. And after I posted that I was going to share that tonight, I got some texts of encouragement. And I love these texts because they reflect our culture of who we are as a church. One friend sent me, whatever your message is, know that I will continue to be your friend and attend the church. There's room for tension in the church. And if I think you're wrong, I'll do my best to change your mind. As long as you don't straight up call anyone made in the image of God an abomination, we're good. Another friend texted me just shortly, said, Just be honest and forthright. If you have to step on toes, even if they are mine, don't let it hold you back. So here it goes. This is Brian's studied belief, June, whatever today is, 2021. It's not the church leadership's belief. It's not any of the worship team's belief that was up here on stage with me. This is one person's belief. I believe that gay relationships can be holy and God-honoring, and I support monogamous same-sex marriages. I believe it's time for Christians to open their tables and their homes and their arms to the LGBT community. I believe that if you are gay, there's nothing wrong with you. Well, there is, but nothing more wrong with you than me. (laughs) And I believe... Truly, in a generation, this will be a non-issue, and future Christians will look back at us with chronological snobbery on our lack of acceptance to that community. And for sharing that view, I know I'm going to be branded as soft on the Bible, as a progressive, and I hope that those of you who have been here the last five years know that I am anything but soft on the Bible. I have a very high view of Scripture, and I am in it every week, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter, and commentaries. I have a very high view of Scripture. And so there's no need to send me a bunch of Bible verses about, you know, the proof text. I know all seven of them. There's seven of them in the stories, because I've done my homework. And I know both sides of the argument, because that's how you figure things out. You learn both sides of the argument. And I've prayed over it, and I did not come to this conclusion or my sharing it lightly. Actually, took me many, many years of not knowing where I stood on the issue. But as C.S. Lewis said, what I did was under grace... God's grace always throughout, and with tradition and interpreters who are wiser than myself, and whatever intelligence that I have, which admittedly is limited, I steep myself in the tone and temper of Scripture, and that's how I came to this conclusion. And so if you disagree with me, great. It's okay. As I've said many times, if you agree with everything I say when I teach, you better be spending more time in Scripture because I am wrong (laughs) from time to time. 
And the rest of you are like, yeah, you're celebrating right now that I, I did this. We're not going to be flying the rainbow flag anytime soon at Refuge, so, so don't get too excited. There are still many components of that movement that I strongly disagree with. In fact, that's part of my reason, and I'm going to call it coming out on my views of this tonight. Part of the reason I wanted to share my views tonight is because of this. I also believe, me personally, that the church has done a disservice to the gay community because we've allowed the world to show them what relationships and sex are all about. It's about lust. It's about selfishness. Where the tone and the temper of Scripture teaches the beauty of relationships, faithfulness, commitment, submission. I want you to understand how hard this is for me because most of my friends are Christians, many of them pastors who I meet with often, and the overwhelming majority disagree with me. And so for me expressing my beliefs tonight, pretty good chance I'm going to lose respect, I'm going to lose credibility, I'm probably going to lose some friendships, and the worst of all, I'm probably going to lose some of you. Thank you, man. (laughs) So I'll tell you, I didn't take a survey to find out where everybody sat in this room. And I didn't pick the most popular one and said, okay, that's what I'm going to preach with conviction. I'm doing this purely out of God convicting my heart. And for those who are serious and you want to go deeper into this difficult question and you just don't know where you're at with it and you want to try to figure it out, Uh, If you're not looking to just debate me, but you really, truly want to explore the issue as a child and to see where that leads you, I would be happy to share with you all of my resources and all the details on how I came to this belief. And on the other side of that, for those who can't sit under a pastor with this belief, I understand. And the good news is there are 300 churches in a 25-mile radius who disagree (laughs) with me, so you're going to be fine. I don't even, we unpacked this map tonight, and I I don't know how we put it back together, because this is about what it feels like for me right now. But in closing, I just want to give kind of where I came to with a final conclusion on this gay question tonight, and, and kind of when I got to the, you know, I got through all the Greek and the Hebrew and the stories and the context and all that. After I got through all of that, and I was still unsure. I got here. Matthew 7, 17. Jesus says, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. The committed, covenantal, same-sex relationships that I know don't fit the pattern of sin that I see in the Bible. The pain, the destruction. In fact, In these relationships, I see the opposite. And what I do see, though, is a lot of bad fruit coming out of the church over this issue. A lot of pride, a lot of ranking of that sin's worse than my sin, a lot of biases, like that just repulses me, so I'm going to believe this. I see a lot of hate. And so I've seen a lot of bad fruit from the church, a lot of pain, a lot of destruction. But with these marriages, I see instead of pain and destruction, I see fruit. I see faithfulness, I see love, I see joy, I see learning to put others above self, and I see families teaching their kids to know and to love Jesus, the gospel above all. And so tonight, specifically, 
I want the LGBT community to know the same thing that I want everyone who walks through these doors to know, that refuge is a safe place. You are welcome here. You are seen. You are heard. You are valued. Your life has worth. And most of all, you are loved by me, by most in this church, most of all, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for courage and strength. I give you thanks for allowing me to preach this message tonight, the conviction that you laid upon my heart. God, I pray that I've read that conviction correctly. God, I, I thank you for that same courage and strength for those in this room who are struggling tonight, struggling in any way, whether it be with sexuality, whether it be with belief and doubt, whether it be belief in does God really exist? Did Jesus really die for me? And God, I just pray for courage and strength for this body tonight. And I pray that we honor our name, that we be a refuge, that because we exist, others will know they have hope and they are loved. God, it's in your grace, in your name that we pray. Amen.